Support for Valley Edition comes from the James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Learn more at irvine.org. The California Endowment. Health happens when Californians value schools more than prisons. Learn more at calendowed.org. The California Healthcare Foundation, working to build a more effective, compassionate, and just healthcare system. On the web at chcf.org health equity. From KVPR, you're listening to Valley Edition. I'm Kathleen Schock. Today on our show, five years after the launch of a program at Valley Children's to help kids with chronic diseases transition into adult medical care, we check in on its progress. And later, how the conflict between rooftop solar companies and large utilities like PG&E could change how much we all pay for electricity in the future. But first, in the last 20 years, nearly 700 people from the communities near San Pablo, Oaxaca, have moved to Taft, a small city in Kern County. And with them, they've brought the celebration of San Pablo the Saint, observed each year on January 25th. KVPR's Mathi Bolaños has this audio postcard. Valentino Bautista Silva is the president of the San Pablo Federation in Taft. He's making sure things are going smoothly. He watches people make their way to the food area where they're served white rice, chicken with mole, and tortillas. He says the migration of Oaxacan residents to Taft dates back to 1997. They came out of economic necessity, he says. You know, una primera... The first person who came here was named Margarito Cruz Silva, he says. He came to Taft and then returned to San Pablo and told everyone there was work here. 24 years later, Valentino says nearly 50% of the village now lives in Taft, most of them working in the fields, picking grapes and pistachios. For that reason, they say they have to celebrate San Pablo here in Taft, he says, because he is their saint. On the opposite side of the food tent, about 13 women congregate. They're getting ready for their dance performance later in the evening. It's one way they celebrate the saint. Me llamo Luisa Bautista Bautista. Soy de Candelaria, Tijaltepec. Luisa Bautista Bautista is wearing a white dress that stops at her calves. It's embroidered with green trimming, and on her chest there are two swans facing each other. She's wearing a chunky bright orange necklace on top. It's their tradition, she says. They always wear these clothes in Oaxaca every day. Now here the young people wear pants, and some of the older generations do too. But they never lose their traditions, she says. They bring them here. The celebration of San Pablo was canceled the last two years due to the pandemic. But now, with permits from the city of Taft, they are able to get together again with their community. Luisa Bautista Bautista says they were eager to celebrate again because it's a way to feel closer to their family back in Oaxaca. They can't be there in San Pablo, she says, so they celebrate here because there are a lot of people from the village here in Taft. Two hours into the celebration, nine men walk into the center of the festivities, each playing a trombone, trumpet, or drum. They're from a neighboring community in Oaxaca called Santo Domingo Progreso. Juan Aureño Cruz Garcia says these instruments are another part of their community's celebration of the saint. All the communities on their side of San Pablo play music for the celebration, he says. And because they can't do that there, they're bringing it to today's celebration in Taft. The band plays, and slowly people start to make their way to the center of the dance floor. Nearly 500 people begin to dance in Taft the way they would have back home in Oaxaca. For KVPR News, I'm Adi Bolaños. This is Valley Edition. I'm Kathleen Schock. 
Becoming an adult is a challenging transition for anyone, but it can be especially hard for kids with chronic diseases. Today, we'll bring you two segments on the sometimes fraught transition to adult care. First, we'll start with a story by Carrie Klein that originally ran in 2017, and then we'll update you on progress at a clinic run by Valley Children's. Rachel Goldring is getting married in October. This smiley, bubbly 25-year-old already picked out the venue, the decorations, and the music, but what she's really excited about is just breathtaking, is her dress. It's a princess dress, and it's strapless, and it looks as if it's floating on air when I put it on. Getting married, obviously a huge life event, but it may not be the biggest transition in Goldring's life. Right now, she's in limbo between pediatric and adult medical care, a time period healthier people may not think twice about. But for Goldring, finding a knowledgeable doctor could be a matter of life and death. So I was born with congenital heart disease. My specific congenital heart disease was pulmonary atresia with tetralogy of Fallot. She was born without a pulmonary valve, carrying blood from her heart to her lungs. That happens to be exactly the same diagnosis that talk show host Jimmy Kimmel's baby boy was born with just a few weeks ago. He had to have open heart surgery, just like Goldring. I had my first surgery when I was nine months, and I was the youngest one in 1993 to survive that procedure. But now they do it from birth. Her condition has also meant three more open heart surgeries, a heart valve from a cadaver, complicated secondary diseases, and a lifetime in and out of doctor's offices. I just celebrated my one year anniversary of staying out of the hospital for the first time since birth. So this year it's been, knock on wood, it's been amazing. 40 years ago, Goldring probably wouldn't have survived more than a few years. But today, congenital heart disease patients can live almost as long as the rest of us. Other diseases like cystic fibrosis, spina bifida, and sickle cell disease have seen similar advances. It's an incredible medical accomplishment. But it also means when these patients become adults, they're being handed to doctors who may not be equipped to address their complex needs. It's a problem providers around the globe are scrambling to address. There is an irony to the medical miracle. The job's not done after the surgery or the initial treatment. Many, if not most, of these conditions require ongoing medical care, lifelong medical care. Dr. Patrick Burke is a pediatrician at Valley Children's Hospital in Madera and the director of its new transitional care program. He's leading the effort to ensure that chronically ill patients aging out of pediatrics find the care they need. Right now, many don't. Research shows many conditions worsening around the age of 18. The trend is stark when it comes to cystic fibrosis. We're seeing this spike of deaths that are happening in the early 20s, and it's bizarre. That's partly because these diseases used to be fatal in childhood. They were considered the domain solely of pediatric providers. Now, more adults are living with congenital heart disease and cystic fibrosis than kids, but medical training hasn't kept up. So young adults are less likely to find suitable doctors, and they're more likely to lose control over their conditions. It goes downhill from there. Why does it have to be this way? Burke isn't the only one asking that question. Dr. Megami Okumura is a pediatrician at UC San Francisco and a co-chair of the International Healthcare Transition Research Consortium. As people talk across the nation, they're all having the same issue. Oh my goodness, you know, we're having like this, you know, increasing morbidity in this, in this age group. She became interested in transitions during her residency when she would see 40 and 50 year olds in pediatric wards. At first I thought it was just a local problem. I thought maybe my hospital was just peculiar. Uh, it wasn't until I had looked at the hospital-based data. I was like, wow, there's a lot of adults in children's hospitals. And why? Like, why isn't our system just accommodating these people? Some of these patients are dealing with really complex self-care, like dozens of medications to take at different times or hours of treatment each day. Things that would be tough for anyone, much less someone also navigating college or their first apartment away from home. Okamura suggests incorporating more disease management into pediatric care. Really, though, she says the root cause lies in the healthcare system itself. They are transferring from different systems of care, and that's artificially created in our system. You know, we have siloed pediatric-based care to adult-based care. We have differing funding streams and programs. 
Researchers like Okamura are looking for ways to remove those artificial barriers. It's still early days, but clinics around the world are trying out new strategies like giving non-pediatric doctors more training or bringing in transitional specialists to connect chronically ill young adults with new providers. There are also disease-specific clinics like the UCSF Fresno Cystic Fibrosis Center downtown, which serves patients of all ages with a team of dedicated specialists. For many patients, though, like Rachel Goldring, staying with their pediatricians is the temporary solution until they can find the providers they need. She's working on it, but taking care of the transition with her fiancé first. With Valley Public Radio, I'm Carrie Klein. Five years later, Rachel Goldring is now a happily married Rachel Goldring Bell. And you may be interested to know she's moved almost all of her care away from Valley Children's to specialists at Stanford University. Meanwhile, the so-called transitional care program at Valley Children's that was brand new in 2017 has now helped an estimated 400 kids with complex diseases make the jump to adult care. In this next interview, KVPR's Carrie Klein caught up with Dr. Patrick Burke, the Medical Director for Adult Care and Transition at Valley Children's, about the improvements he's observed in patients aging out of pediatrics. Those individuals who most benefit are either those who have complex medical problems, so they've had major repairs to their heart, they are intellectually disabled, or they have struggled to adhere to the plans of care that doctors have for them, or it's just very plainly stated, they're struggling to kind of connect with the health care that they need. And at any one time, we believe that there are roughly 1,200 of these patients between you know 17 and uh, 21 years of age who meet these criteria. And the goal there is to help provide them a roadmap for transition. And, and this roadmap is really what helps to serve them for meeting the challenges of being an adult with a chronic medical condition that started in childhood. And so I understand that you you meet with each of these patients individually and you kind of discuss with them what the future of their care will look like and, you know, what what would be what be involved once they leave Valley Children's. Like what are those actual one on one conversations involve? So every patient that we see has an initial consultation, either in person or these days by telemedicine as well, in order to cover the three important domains, these three important parts of child to adult transition, those being the importance of having an adult doctor at the center of their care, an adult primary care doctor, the importance of what we call self-management, or if you can think of as adulting, or the decision-making is explicit and meets community expectations, and then that we really attend to their wants and needs. And in, uh, in healthcare, we refer to this as the psychosocial determinants of health. And that's what we cover and create that roadmap, uh, offer them by mail or by email to provide them bullet points so that they can prepare, but at the same time, not feel overwhelmed. So let's talk about some of the major bullet points that you address with these patients in your clinic. So one of them is establishing for them adequate care, appropriate doctors. And so mm-hmm. uh, you have you have partnerships with some primary care doctors in the area in the region. So talk about how that works and how you um, how you guarantee that these patients will have care after they leave Valley Children's. So I feel like it's important that we we start with with some important facts of why that's so important. The first fact that would be interesting to know is, is pediatric and adult specialists don't talk. They don't. It's, it's neither good nor bad. And this hmm. is true whether you're where I trained in Houston, Texas, or here in the Great Central Valley. In fact, a pediatric nephrologist once quipped that they'd have better luck uh, referring a child to one of their colleagues in Cincinnati than they would to an adult nephrologist down the street. And this was back in Houston. The second fact is by research, less than 50% of young adults with pediatric onset conditions will successfully establish with an adult care doctor without a structured process. And Less than 50%. Less wow. than 50%, yes. Uh, closer to a third in some cases. And this is a recurring finding. 
uh, which says it's real and it crosses boundaries and even crosses cultures. And then the third aspect is many young adults who have chronic health care needs, their insurance is managed Medi-Cal. And that requires a well-functioning relationship with their assigned primary care doctor, because they will be assigned one, to refer to any specialist, and certainly any adult specialist. And so if the transition clinic's goal is to create a roadmap, then adult primary care partnership paves the road. And, and specifically, these partnerships, they create this organized process for these young adults to establish with an adult primary care practitioner that will work with them and with their families who we know have accepted Valley Children's patients in the past, who we know will generally accept their insurance, and we have this accountable process. And remember, the evidence shows, absent a strong process, the event will fail over half the time. So the partnership ensures that adult primary care happens by design and not by chance. Right. But then, of course, you also mentioned that there's a certain amount of adulting involved, a certain amount of self-management of these conditions involved. And so why is that important? Why is it not just important to establish a doctor and then, you know, then the process is done? Yeah, yeah. What is that? Um, Well, if we're talking about a neurotypical young adult, you know, someone without Down syndrome or severe autism or intellectual disability of some stripe, we're talking about adulting. So simply stated, adulting with special health care needs is a high stakes proposition. Well, they already have to do what their peers have to do. Go to school, get a job, get insurance, have friends, find love, become independent. On top of that, okay, they have to manage healthcare transitions, they have to know their history, uh, they have to deal with appointments, multiple adult clinics, self-care can be varying levels of complicated, and advocating for themselves is a never-ending task. Now, if you or I don't do these things well, we flunk out of college, we lose our job, we end up on a couch or in a shelter. If they don't do these things well, at best, they end up in the hospital. At worst, they end up in a body bag. And Carrie, this is not hyperbole. This is the reality borne out by data and by tragic stories that occur with too much regularity. So this is why we advocate making it our job, pediatric healthcare's job, to prepare patients for transition. Mm. And that requires education. That requires preparation. Hmm. Really interesting. Well, so you estimate that your clinic has aided around 400 children with the transition from pediatric to adult care. So how have they been faring? What are your measures for success? Right. Um, One, our programs evolved. Okay. It's, It's evolved since we saw our first patient. We saw our first patient in June of 2018. But what I would say is, first, the program was designed to evolve. So Actually, our first measure of success was that the process worked, and that took some effort. And so that transition roadmap, that is a product of our success. The fact that over that 400 patients, we've reached them and more successfully provided what they needed, not what we think they needed. And now we're starting to measure endpoints. Like the nearly 100 patients, we've gone through a structured interview process and then a structured referral process to establish with uh, adult primary care. And again, that thing that's supposed to fail over half the time, we've been seeding success rates that are close to 90% uh, in some cases. So that's success so, rates in, in actually be- becoming patients of those doctors correct, and showing because, up for those medical appointments. Correct. Because we have these adult partnerships, we can call and do follow-throughs to track Did you Mm. see your doctor, not the first time, but as scholars and best practices are suggesting, did you see him a second time? Where we are working on getting to that level of precision. And so part of measuring outcomes also is knitted into the importance of having these partnerships because the outcome happens on the other side, if you will, of that silo, of the other side of the child world to the adult world. So like every other innovation, we aim to go from process measures to outcome measures. And so as you said, this program is constantly evolving. 
So what's next? You know, now that you've demonstrated proof of concept, you've been able to help, uh, you know, a few hundred of these patients, you know, what do you see for the future? Right. So our goal is to grow, to scale, and to catalyze change. It's about building tools and resources to scale to every single pediatric practice and specialty care center we work with. And then we also aim to form a statewide network to support pediatric to adult transition. And actually we're taking the initial steps to do that right now. So we aim to make pediatric to adult healthcare transition, just like patient safety as a recognized and realized property of healthcare, all right? Valley Children's motto is futures worth fighting for. A successfully transitioned adult, that's the future. That's the final battle. And from there, by the will of God, we hope to see our patients fly. Wonderful. Okay, well, Dr. Patrick Burke, Medical Director for Adult Care and Transition at Valley Children's Hospital in Madera, thank you so much for speaking with me today. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for the opportunity. You're listening to Valley Edition. I'm Kathleen Schock. Next month, an effort will take place to determine how many of the people who call the San Joaquin Valley home do not have homes themselves. The effort is called the Point in Time Count, and its findings have significant implications on the effort to address homelessness. To learn more, I spoke with Jody Ketchaside, Vice Chair of the Fresno-Madera Continuum of Care. For those who are not familiar with the point in time count, can you explain what it is? Yeah, of course. So the point in time count is something that's done across the country, typically in the last 10 days of January, but Fresno Madera received an extension to do it in the last 10 days of February, as a lot of people across the country are doing due to the surge in COVID recently. Um, But what we do is, so it's a mandate by the Department of Housing and Urban Development, and the entire country is required to do both a sheltered and unsheltered count this year. Um, And what that means is that we will do a tally count of folks that we find sleeping on the streets on February 23rd. And then on February 24th and 25th, we send teams out to do surveys to interview those that are currently without stable homes to talk to that to get demographic information so we ask questions like age how long they've been homeless you know whether or not they're disabled or addicted to substances and um you know really figure out what the conditions are on the streets and and what folks are dealing with and then that data the tally data as well as the survey data is reported to the Department of Housing and Urban Development. And that those numbers are used in a lot of funding streams, both state and federal, to determine allocations for a community when they take funds and allocate them to different areas of the state and the country. So then the implications of the findings are quite significant. Yes, it does. It does two things. So the most important thing that it does is it gives us an idea of the conditions on the streets and gives us an opportunity to talk to people and learn what they're going through. To me, that's the most important thing that this does. Secondly, it is also a basis for advocating for additional funding and also to measure what kind of progress we're making in the community. My understanding is that This count has been postponed because of the pandemic. When was the last time one took place? 2020. So we just skipped last year. Um, We did do a sheltered count last year. We just didn't do the unsheltered count. Now, one thing that Fresno Madera does is we do an unsheltered count every single year, but it's only required every other year. So we felt like as a community, it was important to know the numbers every single year. but. Unsheltered is only required every other year and sheltered is required every year. We do both every year. So we, we, we did miss last year, but we did a sheltered count. So, you know, I understand that the findings from the count are, you know, deeply tied to resource allocation, money, but we've certainly seen in the last, you know, couple of years, a significant investment from the state to provide more housing for, you know, people experiencing homelessness 
Yet it seems anecdotally that this has become a bigger problem over the course of the pandemic. Can you just kind of square what is happening in terms of our response to this problem? So my hope is that we're going to find more people sheltered and fewer people on the street. However, we have a housing shortage in Fresno and Madera. We have almost no one bedroom or studio units that are available. We have a 2% vacancy rate overall. And it's difficult for folks, even if they have, you know, a housing choice voucher through the housing authority to find a unit to lease because the competition for people looking for apartments is kind of fierce right now. So my hope is that we'll find that because we've opened all of these shelters, that more folks are sheltered and less people are on the streets. But in looking around, I I almost suspect that that street number may go up. Yeah, I mean, there's, you know, we're in a situation right now where rents are sky high. As you mentioned, there is a shortage of available homes and, and, and apartments, you know, and, and then adding on top of that, the expiration of eviction moratoriums, you know, mm-hmm. do, you, do you, I mean, what is your outlook for what the future holds? Well, I think that we're, I mean, we're absolutely, it would be naive of me to think that we weren't going to see some people lose their housing due to the pandemic and that we haven't already seen some people lose housing due to the pandemic. So I suspect that will exacerbate the problem once that moratorium ends. Ask somebody on the front lines of this issue, what would you like to see done? I mean, because I really think this issue, like most issues, is very deeply connected to our collective political will as a community to address it. So what do you see as a substantive solution uh, to this problem? So I think we've taken the first step in purchasing the motels. Those will be converted once they're not operating as interim uh, or emergency housing, they will be converted to affordable housing. So that's the first step, but we're going to need more affordable housing um, because those, those motels are full and there's still a lot of people on the streets. So I think affordable housing is, and that's what we all want. Anybody who's doing this work just needs to see, we need to see more apartments, more one bedroom, affordable housing come online fast. <laughs> right. And that, and that's, but that's like the, you know, it's just, it's such a complicated and complex mm-hmm. problem to, to solve. And it yeah. is, but housing really is the solution. You know, we all operate, all of the providers operate housing first models and, we see that it works and getting folks into housing and then wrapping services around them is a successful model. So housing is, is absolutely the solution to homelessness. And then just before I let you go, getting back to this survey, how exactly is it conducted? Is it a teams of volunteers? Yeah, so this year we have to do it a little bit different because we have so much COVID in this community. We don't want to risk any of our volunteers Um, So we are relying heavily on the Fresno Madera Continuum of Care agencies, as well as other agency providers to provide staff that already work together, that are already uh, part of a team to conduct the count. So we're not putting out a call for community volunteers in the interest of keeping folks safe. But we will have them in teams of a minimum of two for the first night and usually three or four for the second days and they will drive. We divide the city up into zip codes and send teams of people out and they have like maps so that they don't cross boundaries. So we prevent duplication. So it's, it's really about getting folks assigned to an area. They drive the entire area behind buildings, check behind, you know, the dumpster areas, the walled off dumpster areas and really go, looking to to capture as many folks as we can. Is there anything else that we didn't cover that you think is really important for folks to know? Just that we're in kind of unprecedented times and be kind to folks you see on the streets because they're struggling as much, you know, more than the rest of us are in this pandemic environment. 
and, and really could use overall kindness. Such an important reminder. Thank you. Thank you for that. Catch aside. I've been talking with Jody Catch aside, vice chair of the Fresno Madera Continuum of Care. Thank you so much for being with us. Absolutely. Thank you. This is Valley Edition. I'm Kathleen Schock. A battle is underway over who will control the future of solar energy in California. Either these small companies that install home rooftop panels or the big utilities like PG&E. And an upcoming vote by the California Public Utilities Commission could mean that people with solar will pay more to keep the lights on, while those without solar will pay less. To better understand what is on the line, I spoke with Dr. Saeed Jafarzadeh, chair of CSU Bakersfield's Department of Computer and Electrical Engineering. California has provided incentives to encourage people to invest in rooftop solar. But what this change would essentially do is reduce many of those incentives. And depending on what side of the issue you are are on, you know, different people speculate the extent to which that could potentially slow the expansion of rooftop solar. Is that right? That's correct. Yes. So as I see it, everybody listening to this falls into one of three categories. You either already have invested in solar, rooftop solar. So that's category one. Category two, somebody who has not yet invested in rooftop solar, but might in the future. And then category three is someone who's just not interested in solar at all. So can you explain what this change would bring about for people in each of those three categories? Those who have solar panels uh, installed, if this new proposals, they, they go into effect, they might not benefit from it. So uh, essentially, like at the end of the year, the utilities will charge these consumers a true up. So that imbalance, uh, they will calculate if they have used too much energy in addition to what they generated and they charge it for them. So that amount might increase. Then the the second group of people were those who are intending. Now, when you are planning to purchase anything as a consumer, you start calculating and calculations uh, about solar investment is a bit different because there are costs distributed uh, over time. There are incentives at, at the beginning. There is a dumping cost at the end of the duration of use. But the point is that you don't own that. So you are calculating all these benefits in and how much you should invest and how much your electricity currently costs. So what changes for that group is that all these calculations are going to change based on whatever new policy that uh, goes into effect. And then for the third group, so this third group, these are, these are folks that are not interested in investing in solar. How will it benefit them? It will kind of indirectly benefit them because the idea is to, to have those with rooftop solar systems contribute more into the system, right? So, so bear some of the responsibility. And that, that is really the, the issue with net metering has been that it's all encouraging these systems without considering these systems rely on the grid and the grid has other costs. Someone has to pay. When when you deplete the the consumer base by moving all to solar, the rest, the the people who don't have, their share of the cost is going to go up. So uh, the idea is to divvy up that cost in a more fair manner. And I personally agree with that. So this does, though, seem counterintuitive. Obviously, the state has been moving toward investing in renewable energy like solar and like wind. Explain why it then would make sense to take away some of the incentives for individuals to invest in solar. The idea of using renewable energy is within scientific community is a plausible idea. The goal of 2045, the 100% for uh, California to rely on on renewable energy, 
is an ambitious goal, but it's something that is, we believe it is feasible and we are working toward that. But that does not mean that the distributive uh, energy has to be a significant part of it. And just so, to interrupt, when you say distributive, you mean so, rooftop solar? In, a- in this example, or yeah, yeah, I don't think solar energy is a problem in, in this system. The problem is how it's scattered all over the place. And the way power systems, the electric grid works, for utility, it's very difficult to, to handle so many small generation systems. The generation has to be concentrated in, in one place, and then its operation is, is much easier to handle. And also, as a utility, we want to have control over our generation. But when you leave it on, on someone's uh, rooftop, uh, they don't have much control over that system especially because the consumer wants, sees that the sun is shining, they, they want their electricity. They, they don't really accept not generating at that point. Okay, so if this change occurs, that I would assume that means that utilities would be investing in large-scale uh, solar banks, wind farms, all of which takes land. And and some critics have said, I mean, I've seen estimates that the state would need to allocate something like a quarter of its land to renewable energy in order to offset rooftop solar systems. I mean, what would you say to that critique? Well, they can move investments from solar to wind to to geothermal to other resources. They have to to figure out uh, the balance there. The quarter of California's land requirement is an estimate. How much of that will be realized, uh, we don't know. But I I don't think rooftop solar panels is the answer. Like uh, the the example I always have in mind is that you have, you consume as every household, consume a lot of, we drink milk, right? We don't have a cow at home, right? we move all the cows somewhere else, and then we just receive the milk. It's a challenge in every industry to find the land, to find the resources. Moving these and concentrating them will improve the, the production. Distributing it uh, on rooftops, I do not think that's very efficient. And studies show that too. And that's essentially the, the Public Utilities Commission stands to. Fair enough. But I think the reality is that, you know, efficiency sometimes doesn't match political will, especially when people are, uh, you know, invested in their rooftop solar systems. So you have other states that have, you know, like Nevada and and Hawaii cut these solar incentives uh, for the same, I would assume the same reasons California is considering it, but then reversed course because of this public outcry that followed. Do you anticipate there might be something similar to that here in California? I believe it will be stronger. Uh, the, the political climate in California uh, tells us that, but I'm a scientist. I see what's happening in terms of, I, I've been studying engineering and more specifically electric grid for years. The political realities in the state is one matter, but what's not going to change are realities of electric grid. Uh, The idea of net metering and having rooftop solar systems have been so successful, I think, is coming from the fact that people felt good that they have these panels on their home and they felt like, well, they are generating the, the energy they are consuming, which is very misleading. That's not how the system works unless they, they detach it from the grid. So yeah, I, I believe the, the, there will be a backlash, but nevertheless, uh, technically, I, I, I believe the right way to do is to concentrate these solar panels in a solar field and generate electricity and, and then distribute it to, to neighborhoods. Well, I've been talking with Dr. Saeed Jafar Sadeh, the chair of CSU Bakersfield's Department of Computer and Electrical Engineering. Thank you so much for helping me understand this very complicated issue. Sure.
Thank you, Kathleen. You're listening to Valley Edition. I'm Kathleen Schock. Organizations like food banks, shelters, and schools do vital work to provide social services to the community. But another unsung hero working to meet the needs of the community is the public library. Beyond just books, libraries offer training, technology, and access to life-changing resources. To learn more, I checked in with a panel of public librarians from across the valley. Jennifer Bethel from Fresno County, Darla Wegener from Tulare County, and Ashley Neufer from Kings County. Public libraries across the country have stepped in, in in really interesting ways to provide vital services to their communities over the course of the of the pandemic. And I'd be interested to hear how each of your systems uh, has evolved as a result of the pandemic and how you have um, stepped in to serve your communities. So I'm going to go ahead and start with Jennifer. You're with the Fresno County Public Library, which is obviously a, a really huge system. Give us a sense of, of how your system has evolved. So I, I think I would start by arguing that in a lot of ways, the core, the core of the work that we do hasn't evolved. Um, it's always been our job to connect people to the information that they need, um, the skills and experiences that they need to learn and to grow you know, and to, to provide access to stories that help us make sense of the world, what has evolved, as, as you're pointing out, during the, during the pandemic especially, but we've seen this, you know, over the last uh, 10, 20, 30 years, is that the community's information needs, the kinds of information that people turn to the library for has changed. The materials, the tools and technology that we use to, to find and access that information to build new skills has all changed. And so, and because so much of our, our lives now are online, pre-pandemic, but definitely during pandemic, the divide, the digital divide to, to access to technology, to the skills has really been profound. And so as library staff, we're always pushing to stay current with what the community needs. And often, and we've really seen this acutely during the pandemic, we're, we're struggling to learn uh, right alongside them. Um, and, and that's okay. I think, in fact, it's ideal in a lot of ways because it gives us the opportunity to model information wayfinding, to model not just how to find what we're looking for, but how, how to learn, uh, where, to, where to start looking. And so that's actually been exciting, I think, for a lot of folks. To be able to say to somebody, you know, I don't know, can kind of be one of the most empowering things that we can say at work. I don't know, but let's find out um, together. Um, and so what I've seen during the pandemic is that um, folks have turned to us often as a starting place. Um, they're, they're not sure where else to go. And they, they start at the, at, at the library. And to your point, Jennifer, about the pandemic really exposing the digital divide um, happening in in many communities, you know, to that end, I'd, I'd love to hear from Ashley, you know, as the digital services librarian for the Kings County Public Library, talk about that relationship that you're cultivating with your community. I personally feel really strongly about this. Um, in our county here, Kings County Library, uh, about 20% of our population right now currently does not have access to the internet at home. So that's definitely, um, it's definitely a need that we see here. Um, it's definitely something that I think with with COVID and everyone being at home, it really sort of brought that issue to the surface for us here. So we're doing what we can. We're about to start lending. We have iPads and hotspots and different things like that to get um, to kind of decrease that digital divide and make make sure that those in our community that don't have access to the internet in their homes, we're trying to do what we can to bring that to them. Darla Wegener, you're with Tulare County uh, Library System. You know, you serve a lot of rural areas where I would imagine these services are, you know, really, really vital. Yes, um, the, we uh, serve a large rural population, and um, you know the digital divide is, is it was a challenge even before COVID. 
one good thing that came out of that is that the school started providing some of those devices as well, but we still have our adult population that still has that need, and we're about to start lending as well at Kings County, um, but our, in our case, Chromebooks. And, um, you know, we have done, prior to the pandemic that helped out a lot, is that we have provided um, Wi-Fi at all our branches, you know, and that's been a big difference because we've turned those on during our day, even when our branches were closed to the public, so people could at least sit in our parking lots or outside our buildings to use it, as, you know, as long as they were within the range. And we did see people do that actually quite a lot in our branches. So, um, you know, we we learned really quickly even before the pandemic hit, and thank God we had this. I think libraries generals have this uh, ability to be nimble, to go with the needs that just suddenly appear. And I think that's one of the reasons why, you know, people keep saying, well, when the libraries closed, well, we did it. You know, we didn't close. We just didn't have people coming in inside. We were online. We were doing things almost immediately. And, um, you know, and we had to learn so much so quickly about the online world and doing videos and live streams and um, so many things. But the feedback from our communities has been huge and really, really touch that educational and information and recreational needs that we all work so hard to fulfill. You know, one of the things that I think perhaps the public is less aware of is the extent to which public libraries intersect with so many of the issues facing a community, be that you know, people who are unhoused to, you know, we've been talking about the digital divide, um, issues with education. You know, Jennifer, could you just maybe give us a better sense of what the role of a public library is and and how that is different than just this sort of antiquated notion of providing books? Sure. Um, I have to say, the the public service staff who've been working in our, our branches amaze me every day and they have to be ready for everything and anything all at once. And especially during the pandemic, I've seen them lead with such compassion and empathy and a drive to help people, even as they were struggling in their own lives, because they are so community centered because they believe in what we're doing. And it's really emotional labor um, a, a lot of the time. And the the example that I want to give is folks turn to us at the point of need. You know, we have a lot of users who um, using the public library is just part of their routine, right? They come in for their books. They come in for story time. It's part of their week. You know, you go to the grocery store, you stop by the public library. But a lot of other folks turn to us at a point of need, which is a very personal time for them. It's a very emotional time for them. They need to apply for a job. They need to apply for unemployment. They need to apply for housing. They're having some sort of crisis, really, in their lives, and this is when they turn to us. And our public services staff, who are right at the front line of line of that, are always trying to navigate um, respecting their privacy and their confidentiality, but also giving them the tools that they need in order to make these decisions to complete these actions that are literally life-changing for them. And that's that's taxing. <laughs> I think a lot of folks maybe who haven't been to a public library in a while, don't understand all of the services that we provide. That's really a window to the work that we do that I would want to to show them is that it's it's not all about books. We love books. We love stories. Um, but it's not all about that. It's really um, helping people navigate these difficult moments in their lives by providing them with technology, by providing them with um, skills, uh, with job skills, with literacy training. And and that's something that our, our staff do every day. And Darla, I would imagine you would have thoughts on this topic as well. One of our roles that we take on as public libraries is we try to be all to all people. Sometimes that's really difficult for us because we have struggling resources, um, especially staffing. But we try to do our best and try to focus on those greatest needs. You know, um, we did recently do some um, work with our Workforce Investment Board here in Tulare County to provide um, some access as well as additional software and services for our unemployed or underemployed population. 
We um, work really hard to reach out and work with our Health and Human Services Department here to help with their customers seeking education and other needs through our literacy program. We um, work with early literacy um, programs within the county to make sure that they uh, have the tools they need to help with daycare and other issues. And this is outside of our core services. Um, recently, we did acquire a, a bookmobile, and we're doing more outreach into those underserved communities to try to meet those needs. But like I said, it, it's really about focusing on what the greatest needs are. Education is always a great need. Um, information, providing those through many different avenues, because not everybody has a computer and not everybody has a library nearby. Um, and just making sure that the library is known to um, the community so they know that that's a place they can reach out. And then explaining that we're not just books, that we are a place of for everyone and that we can provide services in conjunction with other organizations as well as provide um, our traditional library services that everybody remembers that they enjoyed as a child, usually. <laughs> so. Yeah, I mean, those some of my... F- earliest memories were were in libraries, certainly. Um, I've been a big fan all my life. So Ashley, I'd love to hear from you before we wrap up. I would imagine in Kings County, you're also partnering and working in conjunction with other social service agencies to serve your community. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I think one of the most amazing things about libraries is they're really a successful library is a hub for the community. You're always you're always looking to partner with new organizations. You're always um, always trying to reach out to your patrons or your customers. You're trying to meet them where they're at, if that if that makes sense. And libraries really a a public library is supposed to be a safe place for everyone. So that means everyone is welcome here, whether you are struggling with housing, employment, um, kids just needing somewhere to hang out after school. That's why we're here, uh, just to be, yeah, a safe place for a safe place for everyone. Well, I appreciate all of you for taking the time to talk with us and and tell us a little bit more about the work that you're doing, uh, which is, again, just such a vital service to to the Central Valley. So I've been talking with Jennifer Bethel with the Fresno County Public Library, Darla Wegener with the Tulare County Library System, and Ashley Neufer with the Kings County Public Library. Thank you all so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for having us. And that's today's Valley Edition. You could hear all this and more on our website, kvpr.org. You could also download the podcast and find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. We've got an app. It's called KVPR. The show is produced by our news team, including Alice Daniel, Carrie Klein, Mathie Bolaños, and Sarith Hawk. Technical support is from Don Weaver. I'm your host, Kathleen Schock. Thanks for listening. Support for Valley Edition comes from the James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Learn more at irvine.org. The California Endowment. Health happens when Californians value schools more than prisons. Learn more at calendowed.org. The California Healthcare Foundation, working to build a more effective, compassionate, and just healthcare system. On the web at chcf.org slash health equity.